You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life Pullman Campus, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Hey, good morning, everybody. How are you doing out? Doing all right. Okay. I can understand. I mean, the weather's been a little up and down. Summer starts and stops and starts and stops, and hopefully it'll start again this week, but who knows. Um, Like this video just showed and what like Jolene just said, we are starting a new sermon series today called Forever Changed. And our hope with this sermon series is that we wanted to develop something that would be as independent as we are up in the Northwest. Um, Because we are having only good weather every, for about two, two and a half months in the summertime. We love to take our vacations. We love to to go visit families. We like to go play on the river on the weekends. And so we're not here all, all the time. There are weekends that we're not at church. So our idea was to develop something that consisted of sermons that were, would basically be uh, standalone sermons, um, but that would have a common thread that would weave through all of them. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at 10 different stories from the New Testament, 10 different people that had an encounter with Jesus. And what we want to look at is, you know, what did this encounter look like? What, what, what happened? Uh, how did that change their lives? Um, and not just their lives, but people around their lives as well. Uh, and this sermon series will take us all the way through the end of the summer. And at the end, we're going to have this great time where we're going to be able to share some stories from your lives so that you can see that Jesus does change people here and now as well. So today we're going to start this sermon series with a gal by the name of Mary Magdalene. Um, But before we go too far into Mary's story of who she was and what her encounter with Jesus looked like, I thought it would be beneficial for us to just talk a little bit about who she was not. Because she is a person of controversy, uh, especially in the last 20 years, her name has popped up in pop culture. If you guys remember the book, um, The Da Vinci Code, back in the early 2000s, and there was a movie that came out with that as well. There was some ideas that presented themselves with that. So the first thing that I want to just mention that Mary was not, is that Mary was not Jesus' wife. Mary was not his special companion. Mary was not Jesus' baby mama. Um, And we know this because the texts that, the proof that they're using for this stuff uh, are ancient texts that have been found over the last 150 years, things like the Gospel of Thomas, which was talked about in the movie, things like the Gospel of Mary or Philip, and these things were long ago uh, decided by the church fathers, but they were not consistent with the message of Jesus and the things that he stood for, and that's why they were not included in the Bible a long time ago. So we know that there is actually no contextual uh, evidence in God's word for this conspiracy that Mary and Jesus had a, had a thing going on. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to just bring to our attention is something that is more um, mainstream in the church, and, and that was that there's this idea that Mary was the woman who washed Jesus' feet with her tears and cleaned them with her, uh, her hair, and that she had been, she was equated with this woman of ill repute, that she was a, a 
a prostitute that had been forgiving a lot of stuff. And this idea really takes its basis in the church itself. Back in the sixth century, there was a pope by the name of Pope Gregory the Great. And this was the first time it really popped up. In a sermon that he gave, he decided, he and whoever else was there, decided that uh, for whatever reason, they wanted to kind of smear Mary's name. That was, that's my opinion. Because the text that they use is close to the first time that we see Mary in, in the Gospels. Uh, the story of the, the, of the washing of the feet comes right before the first time we see Mary's name. And the Pope decided to draw a connection between these two and named Mary as that person. And it was from that day forward, it became church tradition, that Mary was this prostitute who had uh, been forgiven a lot of sins, and uh, that was really her only role in the ministry of Jesus, and her only, her only contribution. But if you look at the text, it never says that Mary Magdalene was that lady. So what I want to do now is let's dive into the text and find out exactly who Mary was based off of what the text says. I want to look at the few times that her name is actually mentioned in God's word and see what we can draw from that and see what we can see as far as like what was her encounter with Jesus, how did that affect her life, and how did that uh, further God's gospel. So the first place we're going to look is at Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3 says this, after this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Husa, however you want to say that, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. So the first thing that I want to bring out about who Mary was, was is where she was from. Uh, we all know that based off of where you're born and raised, there are some assumptions, uh, there are some influences that happen in your life. Um, like if I told you guys that Corbin Lambert, our youth pastor, was from California, some of you are like, ooh, <laughs> California. If we had known that, we wouldn't be sending our kids to camp with him this week, you know? Um, or like myself, I grew up on a small Native American reservation over in Montana, and there is a lot of poverty there. There's a lot of alcoholism there. There's a lot of um, spiritual warfare there against Christians. Um, so those are types of things that have influenced my life. And so I thought it would be beneficial for us to just kind of look at where Mary look, was from, what kind of things were going on in her life, which, what was she surrounded by, just to give us an idea of who she could have been. And from this verse, she says it's Mary of Magdalene, which is also, she's referred to as Mary of Magdala, which means she is from the city of Magdala. We're going to throw a, a map up here on the screen. 
So this is the Sea of Galilee, the Galilean region. This is the region that Jesus spent more than 70% of his public ministry at, was in this area. Uh, just kind of give you an orientation of what's going on here. Down to the bottom right, the southeast section of the Sea of Galilee here, there you see that town Hippos, which is also known as Sita. This is the area that um, is known in the Bible when you see the word Decapolis or the pagan nations. That's where all these people are at. They're all down in there. Rome has a huge influence down that direction. That's where Jesus goes when he heals the demoniac of the legion of demons and casts those out. He's down in that area. Up in the north section there, uh, you'll see Chorazan, Capernaum, and Bethsaida. Those, all those towns there, uh, people that were from there were called the, the pious ones. That's where we see the Pharisees. That's where Jesus based his ministry at a Capernaum. That's where he was at most of the time. Um, <clears throat> and then there's that little town off to the side, Gamla. And that town was known for the zealots that lived there. Uh, and now the big difference between the Pharisees and zealots, you guys, if you've been around real life long enough, you've probably heard this before. The Pharisees believed that they were going to be able to help usher God's kingdom back into place by being obedient. Their obedience was what was going to have God bring kingdom back to earth. The zealots, on the other hand, believed that God's kingdom would come back to earth, but they were going to take it by force. They thought that by being violent, God was going to join them in their violence and bring his kingdom back, and they would take it back by force. So that's kind of the area there. Off to the west side, that's where we see um, Magdala, and then you'll see that little town on the south of that, Tiberias. It's about five kilometers away. Tiberias was this town that was built in Jesus' lifetime. It wasn't started till around 18, 19 AD, uh, Herod of Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, the guy who was trying to kill Jesus when he was a baby. His son is the one that wanted to build that city. He commissioned it be, to be built because he wanted, and he named it after the emperor of Rome that was living there at that time. So this town grew into be, you know, the hub of pagan living and also, it was also a Jewish city in a sense. So they brought both worlds together here. Uh, it's what many scholars refer to as the Herodian lifestyle where the Judean lifestyle and Hellenism came together and they were living together. Uh, <clears throat> much like we, unfortunately, are doing as well in our lives where we have a religious life and we have the things of the world and we join them together sometimes. Um, so that was there. Magdala. This is the town that Mary is supposed to be from. This town was the place to be before Tiberius was built. During the turn of the century and up through Jesus' life and um, as it started to decline while Tiberius was being built, Magdala was right on the crossroads of a major trade route. So people are going through there all the time. Uh, it's a major fishing city. Everybody that's fishing on the Sea of Galilee, they're bringing their fish there. They're building boats there. There's a lot of commerce. So it's a place of influence. It's a place of affluence. There are well-to-do people there. But it also is a Jewish city. Just in the last, I think, 15 years, 
They've been digging, they found Magdala, they've been digging over there in Israel right now. And, and like, I think it was about 10 years ago, they actually uncovered the synagogue from this town. And they've determined that this is the oldest synagogue that they've ever uncovered over there in the Middle East. Um, and the interesting thing about this one particular synagogue is that it has mosaic tiles throughout it. And mosaic tiles were always an indicator of some sort of money being involved there. And so you are, there was influence from the outside world into the synagogue. So one of the assumptions that's out there is that this, you know, their Jewish beliefs was coupled with the Hellenism and they were joined together and it existed even in the church. So this is the town that Mary comes from. She's a town, in a town that is very affluent, influential. There's a lot of people going through in and out of there. So she has access to a lot of different types of people. The second thing that we saw from this uh, scripture in Luke 8 is that Mary was healed of seven demons. Now this is the thing that we're looking for in this sermon series. What was the encounter that she had with Jesus? And this is it. But unfortunately, this is the only thing that we get for this encounter, that she was healed of seven demons. We can make a lot of assumptions as to what those seven demons were, but there's really no way to know for sure. I mean, were these seven actual spiritual demons that were cast out of her, like the guy that Jesus does later on in this, this chapter of Luke, the demoniac that I mentioned earlier? That one seems a little far-fetched in my mind just because if you think about the demoniac, this is a guy who was possessed by demons and had been cast out of his town. He had to live in the tombs all by himself because he was too crazy. Nobody wanted to be around him. So if Mary had seven actual demons, I don't know, maybe she was able to control him and didn't act crazy or maybe, who knows, I'm not, I don't know. That's up for you to decide, I suppose. But what, uh, you know, what are some other things that it could have been? It could have been you know, a reference to the seven pagan nations. Maybe Luke is talking about she had this influence in her life from the, from the Hellenism, from seven pagan nations, that she had all these things that were binding her to this world, whether it was envy or whether it was uh, materialism or whatever, the, all these different things that were going on in her that were holding her back. Whatever it was... Jesus encountered her and healed of that. Or, you know, how many times have we seen and heard that numbers have a, a powerful reference in the, in the text? They always, usually are always pointing back to something previously. So something that came up as we were studying this was maybe this is a, a reference back to creation. Maybe what Luke was saying here is that this encounter that Mary had with Jesus was so transformative that she became something new. That whatever was old had passed away and she was a new creation, just like Paul talks about in Corinthians. But honestly, what does it really matter? Does it really matter if we know what the seven demons were? I don't, I don't think so. I think what we see here is that Mary's life was changed some point in her life, 
either she went up to Capernaum or Jesus was coming through Magdala and they interacted and she was never the same from that point forward. What are some of the things that she changed in her life? Well, if you look at Luke 8 again, we see two more things that changed in her life. First, she became a, a part of the ministry. And as a part of the ministry, it was kind of twofold. First, she was uh, gave out of her own means. She was among the group of women that were following Jesus that gave out of the means that she had. Which, if you believe the story about Magdala, how it was an affluent city, you could see that she probably had her own means to give out of. The part that's interesting and funny about that whole group of women is you had this woman, Joanna, who was the wife of Herod Antipas's treasurer. So she is sending her husband off to work for Herod, the guy who doesn't like Jesus, taking their money and giving it to Jesus under the table and you know, helping his ministry further God's kingdom there. It just kind of, it's funny that that happened. It's kind of putting the screws to him behind the back. Um, so she supported God's, Jesus' ministry through her own means, it tells us. But the other part that I found interesting in this scripture is that she's included with all the other people that are with Jesus everywhere he's going. He's going from city to city, village to village, and it's not just the, the 12 disciples that we see that are there. It's this whole group of women, and Mary is one of them. So she is bought in. Whatever happened to her, whatever that interaction was with Jesus, she gets bought in with what is going on. She buys in with her time. She buys in with her loyalty. She is there. She's not going to leave Jesus' side. And we see that because she stays by his side through not just the good times of the ministry, but she's there in the worst of times. If we go to our next scripture here, John chapter 19, verse 25. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. This is the next time that we see Mary in the text. She is at the foot of the cross. Where's everybody else at? We just saw her hanging out with Jesus and all the disciples and all these other women. The disciples are gone. They're not there. It's just Mary, 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 and Mary, all the Marys. There's a few of them in the Bible. John tells us in his gospel that he was there as well. But where's everybody else? Where's everybody else's dedication? Where's everybody else's loyalty to what they had been going through? I read this article this last week, or the week before. This person tried to say that, well, the men weren't there because they were in danger of being arrested. Really? The women aren't in danger? Do we not remember who Rome is? Rome doesn't care if you're a man, woman, or child. We've heard, there are stories that the Roman soldiers would nail people's babies to their front door. 
Rome took every advantage that they could to show those people that they were in charge. So to try to imply that these women at the cross were not in danger seems silly to me. They were just in much as danger as the men if they had stayed there. But here's Mary, still there. The super interesting, powerful thing to me about Mary at this stage in her story is that every gospel writer, every gospel writer makes point to mention that she was there. She was present. When nobody else was there, when very few else were able to stand with Jesus at that dark time, she was still there. And it didn't just stop at the cross. She keeps following Jesus even through his death. The next time we see her is in Matthew. Matthew 27. Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, he's the the rich guy that went and bartered with Pilate to get Jesus' body so that he could bury it. And this is where we're at on the story. So Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite of the tomb. She loved Jesus so much that she wanted to know where he was going to be buried. She was not going to allow anybody to stop her from continuing to follow him. Her story all culminates in this next text, John chapter 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. That is John, the writer of of this gospel. He... He always loved to just kind of remember I was the one that Jesus loved and then he's going to get a little uh, barb in here at Peter in a second and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started running for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter <laughs> and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in the, at the strips of linen laying there but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. He saw and believed, but they still did not understand from Scripture what Jesus had to rise from, that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood there outside the tomb crying, still engaged. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? I've read this scripture a number of times. I've heard it read a number of times in my life. And for whatever reason, it never dawned on me. 
Why did these angels not appear to Peter and John? Were they sitting there and they just ignored them? When Peter and John looked in, they didn't see anything. But here, Mary looks in and sees these two angels. It's interesting to me. She replies, they have taken my Lord away, and I do not know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. You know, I was, Marty Solomon and I were working on this, and I listened to his sermon on Saturday, and he brought it up there too. This is not the greatest translation of this, in the sense that when she says, Rabboni, she's not just calling him rabbi. She is saying, my rabbi. Which is a pretty big deal. It's a big deal because this is unheard of. I did a search for the use of rabbi and Rabboni in the text. It's there. It's never used by a woman. Never except for this instance. And it's not just like she's saying, oh, Rabbi Jesus, or President so-and-so, or Mr. It's not just a title, it is a term of endearment. It is a term of submission. This guy is my rabbi. My rabbi. Jesus says, do not hold on to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. (laughs) This is another one of those, like Peter and John were just there. They were just left And God waited till those two guys, Peter, someone who is going to be looked at as the father of the modern church, John, who writes this gospel and some letters, and it's super influential in the church, these two guys are not the two guys that God chooses to to appear to. It's Mary. Mary is the one that God chooses to show the angels to. Mary is the one that Jesus chooses to appear to after those other guys just left. And he gives her a mission. Spread the news. Let everybody know there is hope. I am resurrected. Let everybody know. Mary stayed engaged through the whole process. She stayed loyal to what Jesus had done in her life. She had a purpose. We're going to go to our time of communion. If you're serving communion, if you could go over and start passing it out. If you're new here, 
uh, with us today. At Real Life, we do communion every week. Uh, we believe that it is something for anybody who believes that Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior. And so we do what we call an open table for that. You don't have to be a member here. You don't have to have been baptized here. None of that stuff. If you profess Jesus as your Lord and Savior, grab one of the elements as it come by, hold on to it, and we'll take it all in together here in a minute. Um, so what I want to do, just kind of summing all this stuff up, is we don't have home group questions this week because um, home groups are having to fun together instead. They're not meeting every week. They're doing barbecues. They're going floating. They're doing all kinds of different things. Um, <clears throat> so I want to just pose some questions for you guys to just be thinking about here, um, the last song of worship as you leave here. If you have a me and three you meet with every during the week, just some different, you have different areas in your life that you can just think about these things um, talk with them about people, with people, not about people. All right, first question is this. What are your demons? Are you ashamed of them? And do you feel as though somebody like you shouldn't have them? We saw Mary Magdalene. We saw that she is from this town of affluence. She was a woman who had influence. But she had something in her life that was holding her back. She, had, she was bonded by something. Something that only Jesus was able to free her of. And I'm sure that those were things that she continued to battle through the rest of her life. Just like we do. I mean, we all have our own demons. Whether it's a demon of addiction, a demon of lying, jealousy, envy, gossip, pornography, loneliness, depression. They're all things in our lives that we battle every day. And those things bring you know, shame. Those things bring shame. Especially if you sit there and you think about, man, I'm, I'm a Christian man. I shouldn't have to struggle with these things. I shouldn't struggle with getting angry with my kids. I shouldn't struggle with lying. I shouldn't struggle with overeating. It doesn't matter what's going on in your life. There are demons that hold us back. What are those for you? Question number two. How can you use your influence and place in God's story to help push things along and make a difference? Again, we saw Mary who was in this place of influence and she used what she would, had been given, the place God had put her, to help contribute to his minist Jesus' ministry with her own means, but she was also there with her presence. Each and every one of us has some level of influence in our lives. Some of us, it might just be influencing our children. Some of us might be supervisors at work. 
or business owners and have more influence, or you have people in the community, or a person in the community that has a lot of influence, regardless of what level of influence you have in your life, how are you gonna use that to help push God's kingdom forward? Question number three. How do you suppose Mary saw herself as a character in God's story? Do you think that she saw herself as the person that was gonna be the super apostle, the, the messenger to the messengers? Like, I'm gonna be the one that Jesus chooses. Or was she just somebody that wanted to stay engaged? She wasn't gonna let anybody else tell her who she was. Or who she could be. She wasn't gonna let anybody tell her that she couldn't have a rabbi. How do you think she saw herself? And this last question is this, how do you see yourself in God's story? How do you see yourself? God has put you where you are at for a reason. He has given you talents. He's giving you influence. Do you see that stuff? I told you guys a few weeks ago when I preached the first time my story, a little bit of my story. If you were here, you know that I did not see myself as much of part of God's story. That I didn't have much of a part in it. But that was a lie. And if you believe that here as you're sitting here today, that's a lie. God has a part for you in his story. And we know that because of this, communion. He invites each and every one of us to remember what he did for us, that he has invited us in to the family, that he has invited us to partake and partner with him in bringing kingdom here. <clears throat> so on that last night that Jesus had dinner with his brothers, his disciples, he took the bread, gave thanks, broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after the meal, he took the cup, gave thanks, said, this cup is the covenant of my blood. Do this whenever you drink in remembrance of me. Father, I, I thank you for this time this morning. Lord, I am so grateful that you have given us all the opportunity to partner with you. And Lord, how powerful it is to look at this woman, Mary, who you chose in the midst of her living in a time and a place where women were not looked upon with a high regard. But you gave her influence. You gave her a voice. You gave her a mission.
And Lord, I know that you have done that all for us as well. And I pray that as we leave today that we will not forget that. We will not forget that you have chosen us for a specific purpose in your kingdom. And that we will not forget that that moment we had with you where you changed us, that it is a process of us being forever changed for the glory of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life on the Palouse. You can find out more about us by visiting us online at liferotp.com and connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, have a great week.